0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 249, Life in Byzantine Anatolia. As you know, almost all of Anatolia was lost to Byzantium on the eve of the First Crusade. The civil wars that had preceded Alexius Komnenos' rise to power had seen one general after another hand territory to the Turks. Alexius' great achievement was to use the First Crusade to drive the Seljuks back to Iconium, and in the gap that opened up, to retake the west coast of Anatolia. Alexius' son John and his son Manuel both spent their reigns reinforcing the reconquest, capturing more towns and fortresses and building a new defensive network to protect what they'd taken. As usual, it's very difficult to find a map that can accurately reflect real political control. I've posted one with this week's episode, which sits on the Wikipedia page for this era. It grossly overestimates Roman control over the northern and western plateau. Perhaps those creating it have taken literally the claims of Byzantine propaganda about cities and regions which the emperors triumphantly marched through on certain campaigns. The reality is that as soon as the army left the plateau, the area was wide open to Turkic incursions. If you've never looked closely at a map of Anatolia, then none of this will make much sense to you. I strongly recommend you look at the base map that I've been using throughout the course of the podcast. Go to com, click on the maps page, and have a look at it. You'll see about ten versions of it across the page. I've updated it each century. It's nicely shaded to show the coastal lowlands in green and the plateau in yellow. That's the simplest way to discern Roman from Turkic territory during this period. The lowlands were more agriculturally productive, but simply by square footage you'll see that the Turks control far more of the peninsula. And what the Komnenoi had achieved was to draw a line between the coastal lowlands and the plateau. In the lowlands, Byzantine authority was accepted. On the plateau, it wasn't. But that doesn't mean that each side respected the plateau as the natural boundary between two different nations. The Romans maintained some fortresses on the plateau, and their garrisons would occasionally attack the nomads, while the people of the steppe recognized no real boundary to their movement. If they needed pasture, they would push their herds towards it. If Roman farmers were in the way, they would take steps to move them. This could be violent, or it could involve a financial transaction. The nomads who lived next to Roman territory did not see the Christians as inveterate enemies. They saw them as settled people, who were necessary to their way of life. Byzantine towns were markets for the goods which the nomads sold. Cheese, yoghurt, meat, wool, and leather. These transactions would then allow the Turks to buy products which the Romans produced in their workshops. People from the steppe responded to the conditions of the market, so to speak. If they were struggling to afford what they needed, they might steal it. If they were feeling strong or the Romans looked weak, they might attack. But often, peaceful conditions would prevail. As I mentioned in the previous episode, peace treaties between the Seljuks and Constantinople had little effect on the behaviour of the nomads. What the Romans had retaken was very valuable to the empire. Control of the west coast meant that the Aegean remained a Roman lake. The dozens of islands which litter its waves were all securely back in the Byzantine orbit, and trade and communication could continue uninterrupted. The Turkic occupation of the west coast had only lasted for about 20 years, so no major demographic changes had taken place. Nicaea in the north was the largest city, while towns with famous names like Pergamon, Smyrna, and Ephesus continued to function as they had done for centuries. None were as prosperous as they had been a thousand years earlier, when they maintained huge theatres and bathhouses. They were just solid medieval Roman towns, often perched up on a hill for defensive purposes, the ruins of their classical predecessors down below. They acted as gathering points for the people of the surrounding area and had workshops to produce the goods that people needed. As we saw in the narrative, Manuel was able to fund several expensive projects towards the end of his reign, so clearly the tax receipts had picked up during the Comnenian century. The people of western Anatolia were being plugged back into the imperial system, and prosperity was returning. But the world was different now. The Turks were a new fact of life. Their presence had to be factored in to the price of doing business. The interaction between Roman and Turk is most visible to us in the Meander Valley, now known as the Buyuk-Menderes River. As you'll recall, this river valley runs horizontally, if you're looking at the map, about halfway down the west coast of Anatolia. This allowed the Romans to march from near Ephesus eastwards up onto the plateau. This was considered the best route into Turkic territory, since it was closer to the south coast and therefore naval support. It was also the most direct route towards Iconium and Cilicia beyond it. The Meander Valley was a fertile place, dotted with Roman towns and fortresses. But since its path took you directly onto the plateau, it was also a vulnerable entry point for nomads coming the other way. This is the route we've traversed a dozen times in our narrative. It was the route of the Second Crusade, of Manoel's Miliocephalon campaign, and John's marches to Antioch before that. The closest Roman city to the plateau was a place called Konai. It lies about 200 kilometers or 125 miles from the coast.
1: Our historian
0: for this period, Nikitas Koniates, was from this town, as his name suggests. His brother wrote the life story of the local bishop, through which we gain a glimpse of conditions in a Byzantine frontier town. Konai had been established up one side of a hill, originally to help protect it from Arab raids, And now, centuries later, that position proved valuable again. Turkic bands appear regularly in the story, either mugging people on the road, grazing their animals nearby, or trading with the Romans. The landscape of the area was full of monasteries and farming communities all going about their daily business. Disputes over property or anxieties about the weather fill the text, as you'd expect, from the Roman countryside. The Turks enter the story like a new hazard to negotiate. They are like a storm, or a pack of wolves. Sometimes they cause problems for the community, sometimes they disappear. The one time their presence was guaranteed was at the annual fair. Konai housed a famous shrine to the archangel Michael, and his feast day was celebrated with a large fair. Merchants from the area would bring their wares, and the Turks would always turn up to buy things they needed. Apparently several Turkic tribes would make the journey, as would traders from the Seljuk capital of Iconium. The incident related in the text sees the Turks and some merchants quarrel until fighting breaks out. The Romans take refuge in the church of St. Michael, and the Turks start smashing the door in. But the bishop refuses to stop the service that was in progress, and with a little help from the divine, the hubbub subsided and the Turks moved on. What we gather from this hagiography is that Conai was both vulnerable and prosperous. The Turks were able to approach the city without any Byzantine garrison stopping them, and violence was always possible, but at the same time the Roman countryside was flourishing. People were going about their business as usual, and the bishop was able to raise enough funds locally to carry out thorough repairs to the church. In a way, the proximity of Conai to the plateau seems to have brought with it more benefits than we might expect. Trade with the Turkic world was brisk, and provided an outlet for Roman goods that in other areas was absent. For those of you who listened to the bonus episode on the Second Crusade – The Latins firmly believed that the local Romans were colluding with the Turks during that campaign. And it's entirely possible that some were. The people of Conai knew the local nomads far better than they knew the Crusaders. A hundred miles to the west, Ephesus may actually have struggled more than Conai its distance from the frontier making it more secure, but also reducing its opportunities for trade. Ephesus's harbour had silted up long before, making connections to the sea harder to access. Again, we rely on the letters of the local bishop to tell us more about the city. George Tourniques took his seat around 1155 and complained bitterly about everything he found there. The Cathedral Church of St. John was in a dilapidated state, with birds occupying the roof and showers of mosaic cubes falling on unsuspecting victims. He also describes the locals as more ferocious than leopards and slyer than foxes. This may just be rhetoric, but of course the people of Western Anatolia had gone through several changes of government in the past half-century, they could be forgiven for treating men sent from Constantinople with suspicion. George also complains about the abuses of the tax collectors, which can't have helped endear his flock to Manuel's administration. Investment from the capital did arrive to help with church repairs, but clearly places like Ephesus could not guarantee the safety of large buildings. They relied on their governor or their bishop having the connections to the palace which could secure adequate funds. To return to the Second Crusade for a moment, as you may recall, King Louis led his men up the Meander Valley and then south to Italia, the port on the southern coast which the Byzantines controlled. The Latins found a situation where, although the Byzantines held the town, the Turks utterly dominated the countryside. The local governor was forced to pay protection money to the nomads to keep them off, the meagre farmland which the Romans could safely harvest. According to Crusader historians, other fortress towns had to do the same, sharing their revenue with the local Turks in order to keep the peace. So life for imperial subjects in Anatolia really depended on your location, and indeed on your connections either to the Turks or to Constantinople. For those near a port... One could remain plugged in to trade with the capital, and help or instructions would always reach you eventually. For those further inland, life seemed harder. Though the people there were clearly in Roman territory, they were not guaranteed security. In a way, it was better to cultivate friendship with the Turks than it was to try and keep them out entirely. Roman control was largely absent from the rest of the southern coast of Anatolia. They held the port of Seleucia on the edge of Cilicia, but apart from that and Italia, the interior was dominated by the Turks. The north coast of Anatolia, along the Black Sea, seems to have been more firmly in imperial hands. The proximity of Constantinople helped, and port towns like Sinope were better protected from the Turks by the Pontic Mountain Range. This culminated in the east with the city of Trebizond, which was able to keep a significant hinterland out of Turkic hands. The Gavras family dominated the city until the 1140s, when John Komnenos restored central control. These coastal strongholds regularly updated their defences as a matter of course, but back along the west coast the government had to fund most of these repairs. Shortly before Alexius died, we see references to themes in the sources. New provincial structures were being put in place to replace the old ones which had been swept away post-Manzikert. A new Throchisian theme appeared in the centre of the reconquered lands. It covered most of the Meander Valley, with its capital at Philadelphia, which was near the old city of Sardis. To the south, a new theme called Milassa Melanudion was created to defend the southern portion of the coast. And then to the north of the Turkicion, Manuel constructed a series of new forts around Pergamon. This became the theme of Neocastra, new castles. You can see these themes on the misleading map that I posted on the webpage. Where that map really struggles is the portrayal of the area just opposite Constantinople, around where Nicaea is. Huge swathes of the plateau are shaded as part of Byzantine territory. But as you may recall from the last bit of narrative, Manoel had to march in person to relieve a town that was just over a 100 miles from Nicaea. There's no way these lands can be classified as safely in imperial hands. Dozens of Roman strongholds in this region lay in the gap between the plateau and the coast. They were therefore intensely vulnerable to Turkic assault. Though they were garrisoned, they had no hope of chasing away a determined attack. The Roman people living here had a precarious existence. So that's your update on conditions in Byzantine Anatolia. Control of the port towns was most valuable to Constantinople, while the coastal lowlands brought much-needed money and manpower back into the fold. But their prosperity was contingent on good relations with their new neighbours, and there was no real way to block the Turks out. Their movements into imperial territory just had to be managed. Let's just talk a bit about Turks living in the empire before we end today's instalment. We talked last episode about Roman nobles marrying into the Seljuk hierarchy, and the process did work the other way too. Lots of Turkic people ended up in Byzantine service, where they would convert to Christianity and raise Roman children. We've talked about Tatikios and Alexia Aksuk, who were the most high-profile examples. But throughout John and Manuel's reigns, we encounter generals whose names give away a transliterated origin. A whose name comes from Abu Bakr. Uh, Nicephorus Chalufis, whose name comes from the Turkish Khalife, which comes from the Arabic Khalife, as in caliph. The Turkish ancestry of most of these men is not commented on by our historians, suggesting that these are the sons of men who were Turkic in origin, but having been raised Byzantine, they were not seen as any different from other generals. Having said that, when Alexius Aksuk, son of John Aksuk, was exiled by Manuel on suspicion of treachery, his Turkic heritage was suddenly mentioned as a reason to denigrate him and his supporters, and the reverse was probably happening over at Iconium. So people's origins were not forgotten, even if it did not bar them from serving in very high positions, and the reverse may well have been true over at Iconium. Groups of Turks who surrendered, or even voluntarily defected, were settled on lands in the Balkans. They would be placed on military lands, so in exchange for their new farms they would serve in the army, and their sons would then carry the same obligations. These units are called Barbaroi in some sources, or turcopoles in others, meaning son of a Turk. Such units could serve in European theatres without any fear that they would defect back. We also get hints of small Turkic communities that may have stayed in Byzantine territory after the reconquest, at places like Philadelphia and Smyrna, but more information would need to come to light to say much more about that. So a shorter episode today, as I thought we should keep all military matters in their own episode. So next time, we'll talk about why the Romans didn't reconquer all of Anatolia. Could they have done things differently? Or were the Turks just too tricky to kick out? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?